Father, it's always so encouraging to be together and just to join our hearts and our voices and reflect upon the great work of our salvation in Christ. And now, Father, as we reach for our Bibles and we open the Word and we take in the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew's Gospel, would you teach us and encourage us and strengthen us? We need it. Um, our flesh is so prone to failure and the world presses in upon us. And Satan's schemes are uh, so inviting. And so strengthen us and renew us in our faith. Um, Clear our vision. Help us to, to think with a mind that is being renewed by your word, that we would have a proper perspective, that we would understand what it is to be followers of Jesus Christ, to live out his claims, and to walk in obedience to your word. Please use this now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There has been a story floating around the internet for some time, and uh, it's told as a true story, um, but with a little bit of research, um, it appears that it, it probably really isn't. It has evolved. Nevertheless, it's a great story um, to illustrate our opening thought. Let me... Uh, tell you this story. I'll read it, actually. It's about a college professor. The story goes that it was at USC, out in Southern California, that there was a professor of philosophy there at USC who was deeply, a deeply committed atheist. His primary goal for one of the required classes was to spend the entire semester attempting to prove that God could not exist. His students were always afraid to argue with him because of his impeccable logic. For 20 years, he taught this class, and no one had ever had the courage to go against him. I mean, sure, along the way, some had argued in class at times, but no one had ever really gone against him because of his reputation. At the end of every semester on the last day, he would say to his class of 300 students, if there is anyone here who still believes in Jesus, stand up. In 20 years, no one had ever stood up because they knew what he was going to do next. He would then say, because, pointing at them as they stood in front of the class, anyone who believes in God is a fool. If God existed... He could stop this piece of chalk from hitting the ground and breaking, and he would hold up his chalk. Such a simple task to prove that he is God, and yet he can't do it, the professor would say. And every year, he would drop the chalk onto the tile floor of the classroom. It would shatter into a hundred pieces, and all of the students would do nothing but stop and stare. Most of the students by then thought that God couldn't exist, Certainly a number of Christians had slipped through the class, but for 20 years they had been afraid to stand up. Well, a few years ago, the story goes, there was a freshman who happened to enroll. He was a Christian and he had heard the stories about his professor. And he was required to take the class for his major and he really was afraid. But for three months that semester, he prayed every morning that he would have the courage to stand up no matter what the professor said or what the class taught. Nothing they said could ever shatter his faith, he hoped. Well, finally the day came 
And the professor said, If there is anyone here who still believes in God, stand up. The professor in the class of 300 people looked at him, shocked as he stood up in the back of the classroom. The professor shouted, You fool! If God existed, he would keep this piece of chalk from breaking when it hit the ground. He proceeded then to drop the chalk, but as he did this time, it slipped out of his fingers, off of his shirt cuff, onto the pleat of his pants, down his leg, and off his shoe, and as it hit the ground, it simply rolled away unbroken. The professor's jaw dropped as he he stared at the chalk. He looked up at the young man, and the story ends that the professor then ran out of the lecture hall. Don't you wish that would happen to you? Have you ever been in this this great conversation and you're talking to someone who at best is a skeptic and they don't believe the Bible is true and they don't know the difference between Jesus, Muhammad, Sun Myung Moon, and Joseph Smith, uh, Hare Krishna, you know, how do we know? And maybe if God would just give us a sign, don't you think that would that would just be really helpful. And you're talking to someone and, and they're interested and you're interested in helping them and, and then you get to that point, right, where they want some proof. Prove it to me. Just prove it to me. And where are we in the conversation at that point? We're at, you have to believe. Well, it's possible that you've had those conversations. It's also possible that someone in the room today is a skeptic or even an atheist, and you're looking for a sign. If that's the case, then you need to know that you fit into the story that we encounter in the life of our Lord Jesus today in Matthew chapter 12. Will you turn there to Matthew's gospel, chapter 12? This is just a most remarkable story, and I hope you'll find it very helpful. If you're new to us, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and um, there's just so much interesting teaching because Matthew is the most extensive treatment of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. There are other Gospels that handle the life and ministry of Christ, but none are as in-depth as Matthew. And we just encounter some of the most interesting teaching here. I want to read our text at this time, and then I want us to break it down into six or seven parts to the text itself to unfold it. We're just going to kind of unfold the text and take it one bite at a time, and we're going to understand what's happening here. And you need to recognize that Jesus is encountering some extreme skeptics. And they want proof. Maybe you want proof. Let's see how Jesus responds to people who want some kind of a sign to prove who he is. It's Matthew chapter 12. It begins with verse 38. Now remember, as we work our way through Matthew, we just kind of go so far and then we stop. And so we're picking it up. And we're going to emphasize in just a minute that we are in the middle, really, of an encounter with Jesus with the Pharisees. Those were the religious leaders of the day. A couple of those Pharisees, evidently, have linked up with a group of people called the scribes. Scribes were Old Testament scholars You see, you need to remember that in the life of Jesus, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call that the Pentateuch, the Penta, the first five books of the Old Testament, largely written by Moses. 
And then the law and the prophets and the historical books, First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. We had the writings of David, the Psalms, and the pro- and the prophetic writings. And they were experts. The scribes were, and their job was to know, even memorize it. They wrote it down. They didn't have mimeograph machines or Xerox copy machines or printing presses, and so they're charged with the reproduction of scripture. They took it very seriously. They were, they were intimately knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. And they knew that prophetically speaking in the Old Testament, that Messiah was to come. That God was going to send Messiah to save, in their mind, the Jewish nation and set up a kingdom after David's order. And rule and reign forever. That's what they were looking for, this king. That's what Palm Sunday was about in the Jewish mind, remember? They laid down their coats in the palm trees and leaves and he rode in on a donkey. And this was their king who's going to overthrow Rome and Jesus was going to rule. And so they were looking for this Jesus. And so when this carpenter, Jesus, comes along and he's got this tax collector, Matthew, and some ragtag fishermen walking along with him, they're not very impressed that this could be the Messiah. He's had this extreme encounter with them. They have had strong words back and forth already in this text. And then some scribes and these Pharisees get together and our eyes go down to verse 38 of Matthew chapter 11. And this is where we pick it up. And then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him. That would be Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. There it is. Now, you need to understand that they already have declared how much they cannot stand Jesus in this passage. In fact, we'll notice that they have even already begun to plot how to destroy him. And they also are very arrogant. They think that they know more about Scripture than, it, than this carpenter could certainly know, or these fishermen. And so when they say, teacher, it's like on the inside... They're thinking, yeah, right. They're mocking him, actually. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. What are they saying? If you're the Messiah and you're the Christ, then why don't you give us a sign? Jesus looks at them and he answers and he says, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven represented in his own life and message. 42, the queen of of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And now a very strange parable that Jesus continues speaking to them. 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places or dry, desolate areas, seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. Wow. An incredible text. What I want to do is just um, break it down, unfold, unfold it one, one part at a time, and I think you'll see what's happening in this interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees. To help us understand, we need to back up in the text just a little bit. And the first thing, number one, that we want to understand is that this whole encounter begins with an absurd accusation. Number one, this entire encounter begins with an absurd accusation. And what was that accusation? The accusation was the Pharisees pointing at Jesus and saying, you're the devil. How absurd. You are Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies, the maggots. Remember we talked about that? And they called Jesus the devil. Like, what did he do? And so they make this accusation, and, and this begins then, uh, earlier in chapter 12, this strong exchange of words back and forth. And it includes that passage that we've looked at already, where he looks at them and tells them, if this blasphemous talk, and when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven for that even. If you And he just finished this section that we dealt with last week, the tree is known by its fruit. He's pointing at the Pharisees and he said, on the day of judgment, every word that you speak is going to be held up in front of you as a form of your judgment. And you're either going to be condemned or you're going to be acquitted by the very words you speak. And at first we recoil at that and we say, wait a minute, I'm going to be condemned or acquitted by my words? I thought it was the substitutionary death of Christ that saves me from my sin. And indeed it is. And what does that do? It changes your heart. And Jesus' whole point about the tree is known by its fruit. And the fact is that the heart of a man is the well from which the words spew out. And the words will expose the heart. And the condition of the heart is made absolutely, unequivocally clear by the words. And someday all of your words could be unfolded in front of you. And it can prove the condition of your heart. It's a scary thought. Jesus' whole point is pointed at these Pharisees because they spout off and they spout off these words and they condemn and they look at Jesus and they say, you're of the devil. And I'm telling you, on the day of judgment, their words will be held up before them and they'll say, why do I deserve eternal punishment? Because you looked at Jesus and said, you're of the devil. Because your heart was evil. It was never remade. You never, ever repented of your sinfulness. So that's the context, and it's, it's this absurd accusation that they make that leads then in this exchange of words to number two in our, in, in it's verse 38, we see that they make a request for spiritual authentication. The Pharisees, number two, they, they make a request for spiritual authentication. What are they saying in verse 38? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, and you, you kind of get the picture, don't you, that they had been having this exchange. Jesus has healed a couple different people here right in front of them. And then they've had this, this heated exchange of words. 
And then a couple of the Pharisees maybe encountered a couple scribes off to the side of the group. And they say, hey, let's do this. Let's ask him for a sign. We'll get him. It's interesting that they want a sign. The idea of this sign is that they were looking for something fantastic. Something that would prove unequivocally that he was of God. Now, they knew their Old Testament very well, didn't they? And so one of the things you can picture in your mind, for example, that might have been in their mind was the idea, say, of Moses when he began uh, to rise up and be the leader of the children of Israel and take them out of Exodus. Remember when he's standing before Pharaoh that God gave some signs to authenticate that he was his man. And remember what, what did God say to Moses? What's that in your hand? It's a staff, Right. Remember this story back in Exodus? And, and God says to Moses, throw it on the ground. So he throws his staff down on the ground. And what happens to the staff? It becomes a poisonous serpent. And then God says, pick it up. And he reaches down and grabs the thing. And what? It turns back into his staff. And everybody's there doing what? Whoa, I really like that one. That's good stuff. And then... God tells Moses, put your hand inside your coat. And he puts his hand inside his coat. Now pull it out. He pulls it out. It's white with leprous skin disease. Now put it back in. Put it back in. Pull it back out. It's healthy and strong hand. Whoa, a sign. Now I did notice that in the, some of the modern translations, like the NIV, for example, um, they add the word where the ESV translates that there and says, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In the NIV, it adds the word miraculous sign. You see that? Some of you are holding your NIV. It's a miraculous sign. And the idea, many Bible students believe that, that, that what they were looking for was something very spectacular. Possibly something that was solar or astronomical where he would realign the galaxies. You know, they understood the night sky. And they would see the Great Bear, they would see the Big Dipper, realign them, or whatever. I don't know if you can see the Big Dipper from Israel or not. Don't check me on that. So, you know, you're going to realign the stars, or you're going to make the sun stand still in the sky. God did that in the Old Testament too, didn't he, book, right? And so, what are they looking for? They had heard these things. So there's their request for spiritual authentication. Notice Jesus' response then. Thirdly, we see that Jesus immediately identifies them as an evil generation. Jesus, number three, immediately identifies them as an evil generation. Look what he says. They say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign from the prophet Jonah. It's interesting. You know, what's, what's interesting here is that this is in the context of some pretty incredible miracles. And let's just glance our eyes back for a second. Look where this all started. It all started in chapter 12, verse 9. Let's your eyes go there. The caption at the beginning of that section in my Bible says, A man with a withered hand. Here's what it says, Matthew 12, 9. And so he went out from there and he entered their synagogue, their place of worship. And a man was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, see, they're always trying to trap Jesus. Now listen to me. 
Have you ever noticed the difference between a person who wants to ask questions and get information or even wishes for a sign because they are truly seeking truth or seeking answers in Christ and they just don't quite get it? Or the kind of person who is always asking questions that are provocative, they're hypocritical, they're critical questions, and the whole time you recognize in that person they are not seeking truth. And in fact, even if you did show them a sign, they would refuse to believe because they are determined in their unbelief. They refuse to follow Christ. No matter what you say, you will never convince them that the Bible is true. No matter what you say, you will never show them that Jesus is the Christ because they come in with the predisposition of not asking genuine questions but only asking questions to try to embarrass you about your faith. That's it. Look what's happening here. If they were genuine about looking for a sign, what better sign would they need than what they've already seen just minutes before this? He went on from there and he entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand, verse 10, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? See, they were all bent out of shape about keeping their religious laws. Look what here what the footnote says by Matthew. So that they might accuse him. Their whole purpose in asking him a question, a theological question, is it legitimate to heal on the Sabbath? The whole point of that question was to try to get him to say something that they could say, see, see, we told you, you can't be Messiah if you say that. So Jesus almost always asks them a question when they ask him a question. Instead of giving an answer, they ask a question. That's, by the way, not a bad apologetic sometimes. Sometimes when you're in a conversation with somebody, especially if they are antagonistic, and you sense in that person as they ask you questions about the Word of God, about Christ, about the resurrection, about your faith, and they ask you questions, and you know that the whole reason they're doing it is to try to accuse you, or try to criticize, or to try to mock your faith. Sometimes you don't bother casting your pearls before swine, Jesus said. But a good way to do is to do like Jesus did. It's always good to do like Jesus did. A good way to do like Jesus did, when they ask a question and you know that they don't really want to know the answer to the question, they're just trying to just trying to corner you, ask them a question back. That's what Jesus does all the time. Now, Jesus knows the answers. Don't get me wrong. So that they might accuse him, they asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Arguing from the lesser to the greater pointing out to them, you know that every one of you, if you had a sheep that fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, would pick it up. Therefore, the answer is, Jesus answers his own question, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then they said to the man, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. I mean, that's a pretty good sign, don't you think? Guy's standing there, They're at the synagogue, they're having this exchange, and here's this grown man with a bad hand. His hand is shriveled up, it's not working right, and they know this man. They've they've seen him use two hands to do things that everybody else would do with one hand because he can't manipulate his fingers. And they've seen him try to reach in his pocket and get things with his bad hand. And there they are standing, and they would take care of a sheep, but they don't care about this man. Isn't it funny how sometimes people who reject God and reject Christ and reject our creator care more about animals than they do people? That's very interesting. And Jesus just says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand and kabam, his hand is whole. 
I think that's a pretty good sign. That's not bad. That's a pretty good start. Got a man with a deformed lame hand? Stretch it out. It's a strong, five-fingered, healthy hand. Not bad. Look what their response is in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out as soon as they saw that, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. And so you know the whole rest of the passage is couched in this context of their hatred, and their dis- they despise Jesus. In verse 22, we have a similar situation. This is the part that got this part of the conversation going where they called him the devil. They called Jesus the devil because look at verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke. And he's, this guy couldn't, he's deaf and he's mute and he can't speak. And everybody in the community knows it. And Jesus heals him with a word and the man can speak. And the man can hear and he can articulate words. I think that's not a bad sign. And what does it say? And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? And the answer is, yeah, man, it could be. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. The devil did this. Can you see the darkness of their hearts? Can you see that they really don't want a sign? They just had a man with a withered hand healed in front of them. They just had a blind, deaf, mute healed in front of them. And they come up to Jesus and say, Teacher, teacher, could you give us like a miraculous sign? Jesus understands what's going on here. They are not interested at all in the truth. They are interested in putting him down. And so Jesus immediately just identifies them as an evil generation. Look what he says. We just read it. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Evil means immoral. They were a morally corrupt group. They did not have true motives. They did not have integrity. They were not asking honest questions. They were absolutely hypocritical in their approach to, to approach to seeking truth. Evil, morally corrupt. And then he says, you are a morally corrupt, adulterous. What does adultery mean? A person who commits adultery is what? They are unfaithful. They have broken their vows. So you are a, you are a morally broken, unfaithful, And then generation speaks to the scope of the audience. He's not just talking about scribes and Pharisees. He's talking about Israel at large here. How many Jews really followed Christ when it was all said and done? Not that many. And there he was. He came unto his own, John said, and his own what? And his own received him not. You are a, you are a, you are a, evil, adulterous generation seeking for a sign, but none will be given. He had just done these miracles and they refused to see that as a sign and to acknowledge his authority and his power over sickness and disease with just the speaking of a word. And if they don't believe that, do you think that if he would have made stars start shooting in the sky or, or had, had his name written in gold bright lights all of a sudden across the, clou- across the clouds that they would believe him? No, because they were determined in their unbelief. But no sign will be given, except, he says, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The fourth thing we see in our passage. So Jesus, number three, immediately identified them as an evil generation. And number four, he continues in his answer to them. And Jesus answers with two historical illustrations. He gives them two historical illustrations. The first is the prophet Jonah going to Nineveh. And he tells them that on the day of judgment, that the Ninevites who believe the preaching of Jonah will rise up and bring condemnation on them, the scribes and the Pharisees. He then reminds them of another historical situation. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. That would be in the last days, judgment, with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So let's just look really quickly at these two accounts. It won't take long. The first is the book of Jonah. Most of you know that story quite well. You remember Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach against this wicked city. Instead, he heads the absolute opposite direction on a ship God sends a storm. They throw him into the water. He's there in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He gets spit up on dry ground. And then he goes to Nineveh and preaches. Look what it says. Jonah chapter 3. Let me just read it to you, beginning with verse 1. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. So just to walk across it took three days. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the king even sends out a proclamation. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence and turn to God. They repented of their sin. That was the first historical situation. Okay, so got the picture. You got Sadducees, excuse me, scribes and Pharisees confronting Jesus. Give us a sign. If you're who you say you are, give us a sign. He had just healed people. Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. That just like Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, and he was in the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the ground three days and three nights when he will rise again. Listen, it's a word of prophecy about his own resurrection. But he tells them something that they don't want to hear, and that is that a pagan nation who repented would stand in a better form of judgment upon even them in the last days because they haven't repented because something greater than Jonah is there. Who's that? It's the kingdom of heaven represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is greater than Jonah. The other historical story is from way back in 1 Kings chapter 10. And I'll just read that to you real quick. It's 1 Kings 10. And this is when Solomon was at King Solomon in Israel in its glory days. Okay, the son of David is the wealthiest man that had ever lived. Remember, God answered his prayer, and he's also the wisest man that ever lived. And his renown is known internationally. And so in 1 Kings 10, we have this historical account. Now, keep in mind, 
that the scribes and the Pharisees would have absolutely immediately in their minds understood what Jesus was talking about with Jonah and what Jesus was talking about with the queen of the south. It's Queen Sheba, and it goes like this. Now when the queen, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. I had to look that word up. Uh, ESV didn't help me out there. Retinue. I didn't know if that was something on your fingernails that you get rid of. or Very great retinue. Um, that's an entourage or an escort, a company of people. She came to Jerusalem with this great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And, and when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings, and he offered that he offered at the house of the Lord. It says there was no more breath in her, took her breath away. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. And behold, the half was not even told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpassed the report that I had heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And the next thing she said is, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted himself in you and you in him. Now back to Matthew 12. Let me just read to you what William Hendrickson says in his New Testament commentary about what Jesus meant here. Look look, look at the passage. Matthew chapter 12. The men of Nineveh, verse 41, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up in judgment, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus answers with these historical illustrations. And then number five, he warns them, these scribes and Pharisees, he warns them of a greater condemnation. What's he talking about? Listen, here's what William Hendrickson says. He makes a comparison in a chart right on in his commentary that's very interesting. A comparison between the scribes and the Pharisees and the Ninevites. And he's telling the scribes and the Pharisees that the Ninevites are above you. They're ahead of you. Why? Well, it is the Son of God himself who addresses the scribes and the Pharisees again and again right there and bids them to repent, and they refuse. It was a minor prophet, not the Son of God in the flesh. It was a minor prophet who preached to Nineveh, and yet they repented. This Christ before the scribes and the Pharisees is completely sinless, and he's filled with wisdom and compassion. The prophet Jonah was a sinful, foolish, and rebellious man who ran the other way in disobedience. Had to be coerced into going back. This Jesus presents the message of grace and pardon of salvation full and free right there in their presence. And Jonah's message was one of doom. 
And a call to repentance was certainly implied, but the emphasis was on yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown or destroyed by the righteous hand of God. Listen, Jesus was driven out of a heart of love in his message. Jonah preached not out of a heart of love, but out of a heart of obligation because he was afraid to go back in the belly of the fish. Jesus' message was being fortified by miracles right in front of their face. A withered hand, blind eyes, a mute hearing. And Jonah just walked through the city hollering out, Repent or you're going to die. And they did. The scribes and the Pharisees were people who enjoyed many spiritual advantages. They understood that they were God's chosen people. They understood that they were the sons of Abraham. And instead of that opening their heart up and them understanding who they were dealing with, they refused. And Jonah's message was addressed to people with no spiritual advantage. They were filthy, dirty pagans who were known for their base debauchery and slaughtering of their enemies. And Israel rejected And Nineveh repented. Sheba, the queen of the south. Here the scribes and Pharisees are, and they're right in front of Jesus, right here in their own street. But she traveled through hardships to come find Solomon. She went on a lengthy journey over difficult terrain. She probably came from what today is Yemen in the southwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula on the Asian shore of the Red Sea opposite of Ethiopia. Her trip must have covered at least 1,200 miles. And here they are standing in the very presence of Christ. They don't believe. She traveled seeking truth. They have it in front of them and they won't even acknowledge it. They have access to one wiser and better and greater by far than Solomon. But she came to listen to Solomon's wisdom in connection with the name of the Lord, even though the truth concerning God was very imperfectly reflected in Solomon's life. She saw God in Solomon. And they look at Christ and they don't even see God in him. And they call him Beelzebul, the devil, Lord of the flies. You see the contrast? Sixthly, don't miss. We're wrapping up. Don't miss their... Humiliation. The final thing in the passage that you need to understand is to not miss the humiliation of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, I cannot communicate to you effectively. We, we're sitting here thinking, okay, PV, time to wrap it up. And I got lunch plans. And oh, yeah, there's no NFL today. Maybe there'll be a good college game on. We think all kinds of thoughts. We cannot grasp how proud the scribes and the Pharisees were of their heritage as the sons of Abraham, as the Jewish nation, as the apple of God's eyes, as the chosen people. And for Jesus to look at them and say, a wicked pagan nation is going to cast judgment on you. You're worse than they are. And a pagan queen, who they knew well from their history book, is is more righteous than you would have been such an affront to them. And there they are in complete humiliation and they want a sign. And what sign did Jesus say he would give them? That's the sign of Jonah. What sign was that? A couple things on that real quick. First of all, Jesus believed in a historical Jonah. Did you get that out of the passage? Jesus uses Jonah as a real illustration, as a real historical footnote. Don't ever be embarrassed of your Bible stories. You can't explain how a man got swallowed up by a fish, but God did it. 
I'm not embarrassed of that. And Jesus believed it. And Jesus believed it. I'm going to believe it. The other thing that sometimes people question out of this passage, it says, look, three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And so if in the and Jesus is using that as a type of his death, his burial and his resurrection, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Did I say whale in the belly of the fish? We don't know what kind of fish it was. So the son of man died, was buried in the heart of the earth. For three days and three nights. And some people will point at that and say, well, wait a minute. If he died on Friday and he rose on Sunday morning, how is that three days and three nights? You can do a little bit of research, but trust me, the Jewish mind only had to have a part of the day. And they would describe it as a time frame of a day and a night. It was that time frame. So it encountered three different days and nights. Friday night to Sunday morning. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They called that three days and three nights. Don't get messed up. That's not his point. His point is the sign is the sign of Jonah. You want a sign? You want to believe? Look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he's saying. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to take the sins of the world upon myself. They're going to bury me. I'm going to be put in a tomb. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to show you that I'm God in the flesh. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus ends with this interesting parable. This unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through dry, arid, waterless places seeking rest. Okay, so Jesus is telling this story all of a sudden, and it's in connection with the whole thing because he says, then then the demon says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes out and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. I think that that last phrase ties it in in connection. It's got to be handled with the whole passage here. He's still talking about this evil generation. What in the world does that parable mean? I think it is a direct word to the Pharisees. He said, you are, you are trying in all the wrong ways to clean up your house. And you got rid of the devil. So you're trying to keep the law and you sweep out your house. And this demon goes. It's not a passage really teaching about demonology. But demons evidently float around trying to look for some bodies to dwell in. And they don't like dry, arid places. They like to be in a body, demons do, according to the Bible. And so Jesus is pointing at the Pharisees and say, okay, you can clean up your own house and you can get rid of the demons out of your own house. But if you don't fill up with the truth and you miss the truth, the demon goes out, comes back, sees that they haven't corrected their ways. And he just invites seven more demons or eight more demons in with them. And they're worse off than they were when they started because they refuse to acknowledge the truth. And they're trying to keep the law on and they're all on their own. And they're doing it all in the wrong ways. And they end up in a worse condition. And he's, it's a statement really of judgment about Israel at large. And that they're going to end up condemned. Well, what do we get out of this? First of all, if you're looking for proof of the reality of who Jesus is, can I just remind you to quit looking for a sign and just listen to the preaching of God's word? What does Jesus do? They look for a sign and Jesus tells them a historical story from the Bible. You want to know the truth? Look to the word. Secondly, the greatest sign that Christ ever gives us is his own resurrection. You want proof of who Jesus is? Listen, the linchpin 
doctrine of all of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead authenticating who he is. It's the sign of Jonah. You want a sign to prove who Jesus is? It's the sign of Jonah. You say, wait, 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 I didn't want that sign. I wanted a real cool sign. Even a withered hand or a blind man, I'll take that. No, I'll tell you the sign you get and the sign that really matters is did Jesus really rise from the dead? And yes, he did according to the scriptures. And that is what verifies truth. Thirdly, and this is a little bit of a warning if you're looking for a sign. Remember that a sign runs contrary to faith. And the only way you come to God through Christ is in faith. You listen to the word. You listen to the conviction of your heart. Your eyes are open to truth. And in faith, you believe it's true. You know, I take it that Jesus just wasn't too worried about giving them a greater sign. You want a sign? They weren't serious anyway. He just healed a hand, healed eyes. The sign of Jonah, the resurrection. And furthermore, signs are contrary to faith. Listen to me. The only way you come to new life in Christ is through faith, believing it to be true. Hebrews 11.6 says, If anyone comes to God, he must come in faith, believing that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. If you're looking for a sign, look to the resurrection. Get in the word. Take that step of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, remarkable section of Scripture, how it challenges us to think and how Jesus responded here in this way. Father, if there's anybody here who is looking for a sign, would you just encourage their hearts today through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and help them to get into the Word and study your Word and, and may they understand who Jesus is and that he authenticated his message through his resurrection, and may the sign of Jonah begin to mean something to them. Open blind eyes, change our hearts, strengthen us in our faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.